Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the... What am I doing? I'm in New York. I swear <laughs> to God, it didn't even... This is not a bit. I'm in New York. This, coming to you live from Brian Cullen's studio on tape next to... You remember the thing in Star Wars that they went into where there was like a swamp monster in the in the garbage chute in the Death Star? Yes. Coming, we are coming to you live on tape from the garbage chute of the Death Star. If this goes poorly, we will both be tossed in. So Brian Cullen is my guest, as heard uh, for years and years on the Jason Ellis Show. Also, uh, these days on Faction Punk and Marky Ramone's Punk Rock Blitzkrieg. I'm sure many if not most of the people who are listening to this right now would know that Brian and I know each other because we were in a rock and roll band together when we were teenagers. Now, did we ever uh did we ever talk about how old we were when we met? I feel like these stories become a little exaggerated. I feel like everything how old I think I was 14 and you were 15. I was 15, yeah, you were 14. Okay. And now I think a lot of it like everything that we did this story becomes now that it happened in the first year because it's funnier to say so right. we're these fourteen-year-old kids in a club <laughs> when we did play. I, we we probably did play a show when I was still fourteen, certainly fifteen. You know what's funny is I I go back and I look at what I wound up becoming professionally, which is a producer, and I was way more a producer and manager for our band than I ever was a musician. Agreed. Yeah, right. I could I could. And and at the time when we were fifteen and sixteen years old, we had a four track, and I had the balls to call people who ran CBGBs and call people who ran this club called Studio One in Newark, and Escapades in Jersey City, and that's no lie. I mean, we were fifteen and sixteen years old playing clubs, getting driven there by my dad in a station wagon. Yeah, yeah, right. And then what happened was we started winning some stuff. Do you remember we played that one show and it was like for your school dance? It was like a uh-huh. school. It might not have been your school because you went to an all boys school and we were like playing for a co-ed thing. Yeah, well, my school was cool enough to allow <laughs> to, allow, to allow girls to come to the dances, Brian. No, you guys all got to go together. <laughs> you knew it was in an all boys school. <laughs> Well, yeah, sure, but why do we have dances? <laughs> Shut up and you snuggle, touch, Bobby. You, you son of a bitch. Touch dicks and get moving. <laughs> this thing's not over till everybody gets on the yeah, dance the floor. The football team ain't gonna jack itself off, right? Well, why don't we? Let's just go through it kind of in in order. So I'm sure this has come up on the Jason Ellis show before. I had attempted to start a band or two, and what I mainly found at my age, which was really like 13 around then, is there were a lot of guys who liked to say that they were a lead singer who really liked to think of names for bands and draw logos in notebooks, and that's about as far as it went, and I really wanted to be in a band. I started, I I, I really didn't have the patience to get 
good enough at guitar to play a lot of other people's songs, so I kind of just started writing my own from the start. So I was writing songs, and I wanted to go play. It seemed natural enough. And you guys were actually way more advanced on your end. You actually, it's crazy enough that we played in clubs when we were 14 or 15. You had already played in clubs when I met you. Yeah, because I had a ragtag group of people. And in high school, it's so funny. It's like our bass player couldn't play any bass at all. He would literally play a different song while you guys were. Yeah, and we wouldn't mic him, but he was very popular. So he brought us numbers. Had a bit of a mustache, didn't he? He did. He had a mustache. Which is a big thing in the seventh grade. Yeah. And uh, and our guitar player was one of these metal kids. He could play Aussie riffs and stuff. And at the time, I just had enough balls to get up and sing. Right. And over the years on The Ellis Show, you've heard my uh, my singing slash screaming. I, I love to... Uh, I love to jump on. I mean, for years in Death, Death, Die, I jumped on, and it was a way for me and Tully, in a weird way, to play on stage again to get to play on stage again together, you know, because it was like, uh, we've always been doing that. But more or less, like I was saying, I was a promoter. I had the balls to make it happen. What you brought to the table was actually, you had songs and I was rough on guitar. And so what happened was you came in and you could play and you could sing. And I realized we would be a much better band with you and we could cut some of the guys out of the band and I would fall back and play bass guitar. And and then over the years, what, we had like four different bands of all the same dudes. They were just different names of the bands and different versions of the songs. Different versions of the songs. And yeah, we'd kind of evolved. We were little kids, so we were kind of finding ourselves. It started off as a pretty much a pure punk metal thing. And then we kind of accidentally invented emo. Right. In the beginning, I mean, we were, we were doing the Dead Boys Sonic Reducer. And we were doing... Um, songs like uh, Antisocial Child, which yeah. was like not a punk song. It was done by a glam band. But well, they're, we... they're called the Glamour Punks. That, that was their whole thing is right. they were a glam metal punk band. But yeah, our very first show, we I think I wore a Dead Boys shirt and, right. and played a Dead Boys song, which is, in my defense, I was 15. Right. At least we knew who the Dead Boys were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we were doing that kind of stuff. And then what's what's kind of funny was then... Uh, when we were 15 and 16 and 17, um, that band Degeneration came out, and we used to hang out in the East Village, so we would go to their shows, and it didn't show us like what the punk scene was like, but it was kind of like a new actual little scene in New York. Yeah, New York talked all this shit about how we're New York, we're we're the music capital of the world, and it's like... Let's fucking list the bands that have gotten signed out of New York in the last 10 years. There's a shitty metal band called Taiketto. Right. Now go back about four years and uh, Living Color, I think, were out of New York. Yeah. And I think the last band before that was the motherfucking Talking Heads. <laughs> exactly. And, C- and-, and CB still acted like they could break you. And this is well before the Strokes. This is well before the Yeah, Yeah, Yes. New York did become hot again. Yes. But we're not. We were long gone by then. We were, we were over. Yeah. Um, but we saw a little scene, and then, like I said, uh, Mike had songs, and I... so so I put this ad in. The, oh yeah, in I put this ad in the East Coast Rocker, EC Rocker, um, and it's classifieds, music classifieds, and I said what. 
14-year-old guitar player tired of the bullshit. Tired of the bullshit. Right. Yeah, just uh, I, I've had it. I'm done. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that like a 33-year-old jaded guitar player who's been through like 17 bands. Sick and, of the scene. Yeah, yeah. You know, he lost his wife to like the bass player. <laughs> that, that's the kind of ad this this was. Yeah, yeah, were, yeah. Jerry got on smack. And, you were yeah. so pissed off and you were only 14 and... I saw the ad and I was like, "Well, we got to meet this guy." <laughs> like, right. so this is awesome. You came over and we played Doctor Feelgood together. Probably that was our. I, that was the first song we ever tried to jam out was Doctor Feelgood. So my mom or my dad drove me because we're everybody assumes that we grew up together. You're actually from a half hour away from me. Yeah, give or take. So so we met through a one ad, through a one ad, <laughs> and then our moms and dads drove us to. To practice together, and occasionally you would take a train. Yeah, and then and then we did eventually get a guitar player, very talented guitar player, who went on to play with a bunch of uh, high profile artists, including Regina Spector and Butch Walker, um, named Mike Reed, who was awesome. Yeah, and he and, was, a, and and he was seventeen and had a car. He job. had a car. Yeah, he was. He we finally <laughs> this got guy's one amazing. guy. He's who, really good at. He's, he's got he's got long hair, proper long hair. He's really good at guitar, and he 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 drives. He drives us everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So we would uh, we would uh, use his car and uh, go on into the city. I remember a lot of the old school days. Um, we would try to just get gigs by walking up to venues. Right. We'll do it in order. So we we so we both played our first show at a place called Escapades. Yeah. And you, like you said, you were like the promoter, the manager. You rallied a ton of kids from your high school to to come out. And I remember some other band played that was trying to make it, and it, it was like the furthest they'd ever played from home. They were uh, from Pennsylvania, and they loaded right. like forty people on a bus, and we like we stole their crowd. That was the big thing because people were like, these guys were like, fuck you, mom. And they're like, these guys are adorable. This is so cute. And we're like, oh, I'm so angry. I'm going to cut myself on stage. And it's like, I'm going to pinch your cheeks. <laughs> well, you and know what's the funniest thing? Remember we had uh, that show videotaped? Yeah. And we only have two shows. Do you realize we only have two shows that we ever did videotaped? And it's our very first one and our very last one. Oh, wow. That's so funny. But the song we used to play before we went on was Last by Nine Inch Nails. It's true. That's right. I forgot about that. So we would come out and we would put Last on by Nine Inch Nails. Which is which, like... which is Didn't like, make any sense. We weren't we weren't industrial or... All. Nah. <laughs> and then we would do this like punk, <laughs> young, mad thing. Right. Yeah, we opened up with a song called Mary Goes Down. Mary Goes Down, very, right? Very clever. We we uh do you know what? Actually, I can play one of the songs that we played in our first show. So the guy who who booked us, this was we were really into hair metal. That was actually the thing that we had in common, and I think in a perfect world we would have been starting a hair metal band together in our perfect world, but when we met is just as the the doors were falling off of that. And it became obvious that, you know, that was just a big joke. Oh, wow. This is us live in your garage. Off my iPhone. (laughs) And it goes on and on, but... You get a gist of what we were doing. Yeah, I was going to play because we covered. Here, hold on. It was funny, too, because my uh, my house used to be where we would rehearse. And in that song, 
Tully would go, hey, if someone's talking shit to you, turn around and say, and everything would stop, and the whole band would go, fuck you! And I just think back now that I'm a father, if I had my son downstairs just playing that song over and over again, how he's an antisocial child and you should tell everybody to fuck off, I might pull him aside and have a talk with him. Is everything going all right? <laughs> yeah, you remember this? We played this in our first show, t- too. Yeah, now who is this? Alley Cat Scratch. Right. This was uh, their, their, on their self-released album. Uh, this would have been the single, Stiletto Strut. If, if they'd had a follow-up single, it would have been a song called uh, Fuck Her Up The Ass. <laughs> <laughs> I Ain't Got No Class. Yeah. yeah I don't, it, is, it, it goes on like this before they even get to the shit. Now, and when we, when we played because we were younger... We were much more sloppy, so it it appeared to be much more punk. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was a angrier, kind of heavier. Yeah. So it was the tail end of uh, of hair metal, and a lot of the guys who had flourished in hair metal were still, you know, still had their jobs, and they were too old to change. So the guy who booked us at our first show was a grown man <laughs> operating <laughs> under the name of Randy Rocks. Yes, it goes without saying two X's. And he did this look that, to this day, I can't wear, um, I'm incredibly conscious of if I'm wearing a button-down with jeans, particularly as, you know, when skinny jeans come back in, as they kind of do from time to time, that the shirt can't be too long. Because I still refer to that as the Randy Rocks, which is, it's kind of like a Rumpelstiltskin Look, where you have these very tight leggings because you've gotten fat over the years, but right, it's right. all in the gut. It's hiding the it's hiding the beer belly. Yeah, so you have this like flowery, you know, trash and vaudeville satin shirt that's buttoned down, and it you're, it hangs down over your gut, and then you have your little stocking pants, and, and you just look at your thighs, and you're like, my thighs still look good, <laughs> my my calves still look good. All right, these skin, and you never check like the ass on those, like what the, the back of the situation and that is. No, or, guys don't, or the side profile. Guys don't check themselves in profile, where, so you, don't where you look like Santa fat. Claus, right? Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, it was Randy. It was probably a wig, right? Yeah, and don't forget, you remember Randy's other employment, right? No, Randy used to. <laughs> he was a clown. <laughs> <laughs> he used to do kids parties. Oh my god! I'm not making that up. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I had I had completely forgotten about that. You can't leave out the clown because that's what psycho killers do. You know, they're clowns. Well, and the funny thing is, I'm guessing that's where Randy made his real money. He yeah. was just running escapades because that was his passion project. Right. God knows. God knows that booking the acid brats on a Friday night wasn't uh bringing. I mean, Christ, if we were your Friday night act. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that was like because there was still. Like I'm saying, the writing was on the wall for hair metal. So there were still hair metal clubs, and there were touring bands, bands that might have had, you know, like if L.A. Guns, a band mm-hmm. that could legitimately be on Headbangers Ball and maybe even regular rotation, if they weren't opening for an arena metal band, they would come to New Jersey and play like a, a Studio One. Right. I remember I we're, went out and saw that band Tough. Yeah. And they were like, they were like one of those, they had that song, Ruck a Pit Bridge. Oh, speak of the devil. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
You say Ruck-A-Pit Bridge, Ron Tully. She goes right into it. I mean, I'm sure everybody's familiar with Ruck-A-Pit Bridge. <laughs> Naturally. It's, it's, uh, I apologize if this is a little too played out in your life, but still Dude, a classic This is the third time today I've heard Ruck-A-Pit Bridge. <laughs> I think it's getting its own channel on Sirius. I went out to dinner with this guy because he was managing that band that uh, the BAM was all about. Oh, they were nice him? kids. No, 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 no. They were. Uh, oh, oh, they were the they were the L.A. glammy yeah, kind of thing. Swedish something. Rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really nice kids, and I remember. Uh, yeah, that was Stevie reinvented himself as a an impresario, but before he did this this song, which uh, Brett Michaels wrote. Brett. Right, they were always, they had the look that they were kind of like the poor man's poison. They were, in many ways, the poor man's poison. And at that point, I'm not even sure it was all that great to be poison. But yeah, Brett, Brett gave him the There you go. Time to surrender. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, bands like that would come and play the same clubs that we were playing at. So Right, but Escapades was several notches down. Several notches down, but that... That's the next spot we played, I believe, was Studio One. Right. And whenever I could get us on a bill, Studio One was the kind of operation where these are the um, pay-to-play era, where more or less we would book a show at Studio One and they would say, hey, that's great. you got to guarantee you're going to bring 20 people here. Mm -hmm. And guaranteeing you bring 20 people was... You're bringing 20 people at 10 bucks a ticket. Basically, So you owe us $200 to get on the stage. Yeah. And so we were always kind of able to make our money because we were able to bring out we were able to bring out kids. What we yeah, should have done ad- more is done the house party. The house party we would have killed at. Yeah, but that's the advantage. There were no of, houses to play of being a high school band. I think Jane's Addiction used that, and I think Van Halen did as well. Mm-hmm. I, I have a friend who who is somewhat less successful as a musician than Van Halen and, and Jane's Addiction, but also brought everybody from his high school so they could right. get on club bills. And the problem was, and I know that the the clubs were doing what they had to do because live music was just sort of dying, but you couldn't make a scene that way. No. Because you didn't put together shows that made any logical sense. It was just six bands that could- That all brought their own people. And so you would you would get up on stage and your people would watch you and you're, you know, the one guy who did a hit of acid in the parking lot or, or drank a half a bottle of peppermint schnapps or something would be playing air guitar on the side of your stage or whatever- and then when you were done, in the time it took you to switch your gear out and the other band up for Love Maker to come up, your fans would be gone and their fans would have come in. It was pathetic. Right. But it, it, it seemed that we were always able to get a show like, and again, it's high school, it's before the internet, it's before cell phones, all that shit. I'm 41 years old, so we're going back to 1992, 93, 94. Um, we were always able to get uh, shows but it would be like one show every four months, and then we'd figure out like another show. And then in between that, there became all these little opportunities. So I remember one of the first opportunities was we entered a contest, and we won a battle of the bands. And we got to go and play at the Cricket Club uh, off, the, uh, off the Garden State Parkway in Jersey in the Oranges. That's where, um, what's that band from? The Fugees? The Fugees are That's from. That's right. Yeah, I think we were on the same bill as the yes. Fugees. That night. They were very supportive of and us. And that, that night, I remember- The Oranges, that- by the way, the town names are South Orange, North Orange, East Orange. Yeah. There you go. And that night, the uh, that night, it was a Friday or Saturday night, and through whatever means happened, my 
entire high school wound up showing. I believe that night we sold something like 250 tickets, which was just insane. So it would be like Mm -hmm. we'd get these cool opportunities. Well, and so the way here's the way Battle of the Bands work. We we sold the most tickets. We won that round. (laughs) (laughs) We 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 got to go to the next round to have a, a the the golden opportunity to try to sell those same people tickets all over again and, and is that when we did i forget the name of the club in the city i think that's where the sound engineer fell asleep because he was so high sunny yeah sunny sunny, sunny was not an out on a <laughs> i think sunny had probably been a uh, a really good engineer 25 years earlier yeah he looked like if steven root you know the what's that guy's name the the stapler guy from office space and you know, a million other things. If that guy played like a uh, degenerate, overweight, drug addicted roadie, <laughs> it would have been Sunny. And yeah, I just remember. <clears throat> so you do sound check, and I to this day I can't be bothered. I have the worst guitar tone in the world, and I, my hands just naturally create feedback. It's like it's like I'm a fire starter for for feedback, and, and so I, I'm. No matter what, even if people do it the right way, I'm always like, why is this taking so long? Just put a microphone in front of it and let's play. But I remember at a certain point we were sound checking and I was like, this is taking longer than than usual. And then it was like, this is really taking longer than usual. And then I remember what he came and sat down on the drum riser. Yeah. And the thing they put the drum kit on so the drummer's a little bit higher than the band. And just nodded off. Yeah, yeah, that dude was full on and he- couldn't be roused. And so the, the 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 crazy lady who was running these things wasn't exactly talking to us on the level because we were children. But I do remember hearing the phrase "horse tranquilizers." <laughs> 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 so we had to go up because it was like a shakedown. Remember, we had to get money back. That's exactly what happened. For some weird reason, yeah, the office that she was working out of at this venue, which was a nice, you know, we got to play these cool old New York venues. Uh, that on, one was on Bond Street. Was that Bond Street? It was or was not. That, that was another, yeah. but yeah. I want to say it was one of the Lion one, Red Lion, Lion's Den. Or, Lion's Den, yeah. And and yeah, and she was up on in an office on the second floor, and it was basically like shows canceled, but they weren't giving money back. And you basically had half of your high school football team lead the charge up the stairs and bang on the door and be like, we... We, there's no show. Give us our money back, and I think she backed down. Again. Yeah, no, we got we got but the I, money I don't, back. I don't think we won the battle of the bands. No, <laughs> so, suddenly our band wasn't so popular. <laughs> so after our crowd physically threatened her, so we would do we would do stuff like that, and then uh, we got into senior year of high school, and because our guitar player was a year ahead of us, he had graduated high school. And was at the Institute of Audio Research. Right. And that's the next kind of chapter of the band because we had always been fucking around with four tracks and stuff. And I have uh, one of our guys, um, we worked with this guy named Darren. Remember, uh, you guys ready for a full-blown Skid Row show? Everything, no matter what you did, was (laughs) a little bit of a lisp, which I say endearingly because it made everything that he said like 30% funnier. He's like, I mean, I got a full-blown Skid Row show in my basement, man. (laughs) And And he would walk. I remember he he... He uh, he was just really into sugar. He was one of the most wholesome rockers ever. Because New Jersey, like the bad boys of rock and roll, all lived in New York. The good boys of rock and roll. You could totally tell a Jersey band from a New York band. Yeah, it was so, like Trickster yeah, versus like Guns N' Roses. Trickster, like, uh, Bon Jovi. Like, you know, these guys are nice to their mom and, you know, and like call their grandma on her, on her Jimmy birthday. Jimmy takes care of the lawn for grandma. And he's got his drum kit in the basement. Everybody's, he's such a good rocker. Exactly. So this guy would like... 
kick a hole through a, a bass drum skin and then just like wear it like a tutu and be like <laughs> and start recording like I got full bone skid row show at my basement. <laughs> it's, it's fucking crazy, man. It's sick, it's sick, sick, sick as balls. Sick as balls. That was everything. Sick as balls. Sick as balls. Skid row show at my basement. So we did we did a bunch of eight tracks with him and I always liked recording. Um, and I think that's when I started to move towards like, hey, this is something that I'd find fun to do. Um, and when our guitar player got into the Institute of Audio Research, he said- re- they- re- Rendering us a power trio. Yeah. He said, he said hey, um, we should, uh, they need guinea pig bands. They need bands to record. And so he wound up getting us in. And I remember the second um, half of the year, my senior year, I didn't go to school on Fridays because we recorded every Friday. Mm-hmm. We had studio time in, the in city. New York City. We had studio time. And I got my folks to be like, write me a note like he's going to miss 20 days of school. I must have done the same. I remember because I was on the speech and debate team as well. And we were. You know, we would only have one day a week, and you'd get so far in the recordings. And, and, and so the way that it worked is they would have classes of students. And then whenever they got through, I'm sure they had some classroom shit. And then when it was time for them to do hands-on stuff, they would – it was really their studio time. They would get, like, eight weeks. And so you would have to do shit from start to finish on their schedule. And you could even be in multiple the, – the guinea pig band for multiple ones at a time. But whatever it was, this set of recordings we were doing, I think we may have been mixing. Like it was the last week of that set of whatever uh, set of recordings we were doing. And I went to my speech and debate guy and was like, I'm going to miss um, the state speech tournament to go record. And he's just like – I got halfway through and he's like, are you telling me that you're going to miss states for this? And I was like – I'm not gonna miss dates. And he's like, No, you're not gonna miss dates. So I was like, Okay, guys, you guys just mix those without me. Yeah, but it, it it was fun and and for me especially when I got to go in and do all this stuff because now at this point I was also seventeen years old. Um, so I was driving as well. So I used to drive in and out of the city a lot and Yeah, that big, have that big to- Oldsmobile. I'd have to be there early and help set up, and if we're bringing gear, help load it in. But I started paying attention, and I started watching how everybody did the recording stuff. And when you fast-forward a a couple years further to the year 2000, I would go and buy a Pro Tools set when Pro Tools wasn't even a thing yet because I saw that that was the future, and I had learned enough with audio in those sessions (laughs) To really start being an engineer, and that's what got me on the road to my current job now. Right, right, and <laughs> indirectly on my road. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, and so <clears throat> somewhere along the way, so like I said, we were power a trio. That would have been, I guess, the third incarnation of the same band, and then I don't remember why exactly. At that point, were we called Sylph? Yes. Yeah, nymphs. Nymphs are the the fairies in the waters. Sylphs are the same thing in uh, in the um, in, in the woods. I met a girl who called herself Sylph. Of course she did. And I thought it was the <laughs> coolest thing ever. And I remember, yeah, uh, you know, there's a whole other thing there. But so then we got our guitar player got back in at some point, and then we were National Velvet, 
which was like the fourth name of the exact same band. And that's like when we say the band and we talk about silver leather pants and shit like that, that's what you're talking about. I don't remember why. I guess Mike just finished audio recording and just didn't do much with it. And he's back in the band. And you tell me if you have the same memory that I do. We didn't play out all that much just because it wasn't it wasn't cool. It wasn't an easy thing to do. Believe me, if there was just some cool rock and roll club that we could have been playing at every weekend, we would have done that. Instead, what we really did is rehearse. We pretty much were just about the house band at this rehearsal studio uh, where your parents now live. Yes. In New Jersey, they built homes where... It is wild. There was... <laughs> This road is the road I used to, and I drive up to where we used to rehearse, and it's not there anymore. It's all these new condos. Wild. And, um, yeah. So we, we, we used to hang out, and we, we'd get a 12-pack of beer, mm-hmm. you know, seniors in high school, and have a little bit of weed. And we yeah, book bring, out, like, four hours of bring, rehearsal. Bring girlfriends. Bring girlfriends. That's what we did on... On Friday nights, and I never felt, yeah, I, I still went out drinking. And eventually, we did wind up making those into little parties. We yeah. did start inviting people, like, well, come watch us play, because it got cooler. Like, what I, what wound up happening to me was I had to load all the gear, which was such a fucking schlep of, like, load this up, load that up, move move a whole drum set every time you play, because there's no fucking back line. And we were bringing, like, bass amps. Just... Horrible shit. Nowadays, most clubs will have like some kind of backline where it's like you don't have to do that. But um, you know, uh, you it always felt like I was hustling my friends. Right. It'd be like, oh, you want to come out and see us play? And it's like, well, do you have new songs? And it's like, no, it's the same eight songs we played the we've last pl- four tw- times you yeah. saw. It's like it was just it, it felt like a shakedown. So that's why I always gravitated towards. Recording. I always liked the yeah. recording thing because we could get holed up in a studio, you know? Right. So, yeah, we were at the rehearsal place all the time, and the guy who ran it was, uh, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but a paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who wanted to manage us. Yeah. Spoiler alert, he kind of ultimately ended up doing that in a in the, in the worst way possible. But, yeah, he the thing with him was we started smoking weed. And I don't know how you got weed, but I went to high school in New York, and you go to Washington Square Park. And, you know, it's still going on. It's crazy. I walked through there last night, and five different guys are like, smoke, smoke, smoke. And it's like, who is still buying weed from these? That was all we had back then. That was all we had. And it was garbage. This guy was, like, 40 years old and lived with his parents. He had amazing weed. Yeah. So it was always we'd be done rehearsing, and he'd say, do you guys want to—do you guys want to—or no, no, no. He would never offer us weed, we w- and we would never ask him for it. We would just hang out in his office and bullshit a little bit, and sometimes you'd be there for a half an hour, and he wouldn't do anything, and you'd be like, fuck, okay, see you later, dude. But sometimes, like 15 minutes in, he'd reach for his thing and start rolling while he's talking, and you're like, okay, good, because this is the only reason why we're here. And it was just far and away the best weed that any of us had ever smoked, so you'd put up with hanging out with... Right, a lunatic right. <laughs> with his parents because he had this incredible weed, and he also at one point he didn't like one of our many many band. We had went through a bunch of band names. We were like 
Velveteen. Right. And then we did a demo somewhere, and when they, the engineer finished it and handed it to us, he'd written the Velvet Teens. Right. And we're like, okay, that's out. Then so, he said, you guys should get, be the Meerkats. And he goes, he goes, I got a band name for you guys. You should be the Meerkats. And like, my impression of him is the exact same thing as my impression of George W. Bush. Yeah. And we're like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you ever seen a Meerkat? <laughs> As if that would sell us on the name. So we were never, we were never the Meerkats. But so we, I don't know. We we would the band as any you know kid project does. We would just like break up from time to time and not really be in touch. And then it would get back together. And as I recall, like I mean, this whole time we're doing all this stuff. I mean, you're 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 dealing with fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. Those are incredibly volatile. Yeah. Times in your youth. Right. Things change by the week. Right, exactly. And and life situations. But it's funny, any time any other member came into the fold, it never worked. It was only us four that could figure out a way to yeah. make it work. Anytime it was like, oh, you know, I have a friend who still brings up to this day. You saw her the other day and she's like, anytime we're hanging out, she'll be like, I tried out for Brian's band and they didn't want me. You I'm, know I'm having dinner with her tonight. Last week, she introduced me to Megan Mullally and Nick Offerman with This Is Mike. I tried out for his band when we were 15. He wouldn't let me in. Yeah, she, she loves it. She still she still leads with that. Mind you, her band, because uh, I think our, 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 our trajectories overlapped a little bit, she was going to college for classical guitar, and in her band, she basically played the Moog. Yeah. And we had silver leather pants, and she couldn't figure out why. I didn't think that we could creatively gel with one another. But no. uh, she but was yeah. she was she was on a different. She was like on an indie tip, and we were on something else. But yeah, so so as I recall, we were kind of effectively broken up, just because it was we'd sort of reached the the dead end. Nobody had a problem with each other or anything like that. But we were done, and then I don't know how we got the the message that there was this talent search thing going on right i don't i don't recall and they're like yeah there's this brand new studio that's opening up state-of-the-art legitimate thing in suburban new jersey in paramus trickster country and the gimmick to get the word out is i think for 72 hours they're giving away a free hour of live recording time and you get to keep the recording no matter what. They're... And I remember it was the kind of thing we hadn't played in a minute. Right. We were broken up. We yeah. really, we really, really were. And we had to get together and rehearse to go down and play for this thing. Yes, right. And then what wound up happening... I remember because they, they go, and we'd, we'd been around the block. They're like, yeah, man, TV's going to be there. Media's going to be there. It's this big thing. They're really looking for a star. And it's like... My dick TV's going to be there. Right. And then we fucking walk in. We were in. so jaded. And yeah. again, still 19 years old at and this point. And tired of the bullshit. But we're tired of the bullshit and, again. And we walked in and a reporter from Channel 9 News from New York interviewed us about, so are you guys nervous? Are you excited about the chance to be rock stars? And then we got in the room. And and well, well and here's, here's the funniest part of it. Everybody who showed up there was mid-20s, long hair, Look like a dirtbag, you know that rock guy. Like a Skid Row show in my basement. Like a Skid, they all look like Skid. They could be in Skid Row, yeah. and it was like. Well, by the way, Dave Sabo from uh, I guess Dave Sabo from Skid Row came and saw us later. Yes, on. We'll later, later on we would hang with Skid Row, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, we would uh, we would hang out and 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 go in, and 
we were so different, not by even trying to be different, just by the fact that we almost looked like a put-together band because we were four high school kids who were all about the same height, were all about the same weight, who were all you – know, we were cute kids. Like, it, it, it worked. It, it, it looked like – if I would look at it now through the eyes of being so much older, I would say that's a bullshit band. Like, somebody put them together. Uh-huh. Right. You know what I mean? That's not real. Right. But we were just and, – and then when they stuck a mic in my face or in Mike's face, as you know, we became broadcasters, we had no tr- trouble talking. So I remember I gave the news some clips, you gave him some clips, and we wound up on TV that night. Yeah, we were on TV that night, and I remember we went in and we played our first song, which was like our dumb hit song, and one of the management guys – came over to the window, it's floor-to-ceiling soundproof, and was playing air guitar to our thing. And it was like, oh, my God, they really, really like this. And, yeah, we pretty much walked out, and it was like, you guys are the – so the guy who's running the thing is this English dude who has these really incredible credits. And it's true that he has these credits. He legitimately had platinum records, but it was almost entirely for things that had happened in the 70s. Right, right. It wasn't, it wasn't anything modern, and he was – he was going to relaunch a thing. Were we the only band that got a deal that day? Uh, no, there was a, a really terrible, um, I don't even know what you call this, kind of like helmet right. kind of thing. Right, right. And I remember they, they recorded an album because he built a studio, but he bought everything. Like he just bought some other studio that had gone out of business in its entirety. And he's like, yep. so the guy's English and everything is, is freaking great. Totally freaking great. And I remember he was, we were going to record our album at his studio, but the other band went first. And as we're just hearing this stuff done, even they were just like, what, why are we bothering to do this? This is unlistenable. Right. Because as, as they were making the studio, they were building the studio. It was a really janky thing. They had a huge, they had a huge performance room, which had all these echo problems. Yeah. They didn't have soundproofing. The board was all they ran out of money. shoddy. They ran out of money is exactly what happened. So we signed. We, we went on the, the news, and then the guy um, – <laughs> so we told him that we needed some money to update our look a little bit, and we were kind of beating around the bush, and he's just like, what are you talking about? And I think he wanted to impress us, and the stakes were so small – in our imagination that he was able to do it we're like we need we need clothes to look right and he's like how much and we said a thousand bucks which was like so much money (laughs) crazy and we went by his house and we picked up a check for a thousand dollars and then we went into new york and we went to a bank to cash it and they wouldn't because the guy had the handwriting of a child no all it was is we're complete rock and roll scumbags with a check for one thousand dollars from a man who's not there and it and it literally said one thousand dollars memo band clothes (laughs) (laughs) this is like bill and ted showing up with a forged yeah i believe he had i i believe he had to be called like oh he definitely did he most definitely did stuff had to go down and and, and we we left with the money and then we went to and we went shopping once and that's and then we wore those clothes everywhere we played we had one look right well we had so we went to ninth street in in the west village and we went to all these like you know boutique places we've never been in before and we spent money and we ended up getting I got the really shiny <laughs> silver <laughs> pants. My, re- my pants were muted. Yeah, you silver. got. You, well, I think what it was is that mine were either they were expensive or it may have just been that they literally only had one pair of mine and they were definitely the coolest ones. Right. So obviously, I had to get the cool ones because I was the singer and you guys just had the other ones that they had. And I remember we we took the pictures. I think before we even bought them, 
we took the picture and showed him to our manager so he could okay it. And I remember, it, I swear to God, I didn't do it on purpose, but I was like half chubbed in the picture. And I remember him looking and be like, oh, it looks like we're uh, doing pretty good in that department. Because <laughs> he was just old rock and roll. And it yeah. was like, yeah, man, you're going to get leather pants and show everybody your big fat dick. <laughs> well, and then, and then uh, further on that, a bunch of months later, we got interviewed um, by a newspaper. Yep. And those same pants split, and your balls came out in front of that female reporter. Right? I, I had no idea because I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm cool in rock and roll, so I'm sitting in the chair, and I got my I got my legs up, like I'm I'm holding my knees, you know, against my chest, and I'm talking about you know just I think we just really speak to a different generation, you know, <laughs> and then it's, it's photographers and shit, and then when they're done, I just look down, and there's just one fucking ball, one <laughs> ball probably just popped out. It's so good, man. Yeah, and then we we made the mistake. I, I to this day I don't know. I don't know how we could have been this stupid. So we walk out and we play our hour, and it's just like you guys have a deal. You're gonna be on the news tonight. You're like going to be stars, and we're like, yeah, cool, because we were always super super cocky and we never played out much, so we didn't have much real human feedback to go by. So we're like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. Um. Did you not hear? I'm tired of the bullshit. <laughs> so the guy hands us a contract, and we didn't know what to do with it, and there was lots of shit in there. You know, it's an entertainment contract. So he recommended a lawyer. That's so, number one rule. Uh, like, never never let somebody you're trying to make a deal with pick your lawyer. <laughs> because we go, and I wind up going and seeing this guy, and the first time I saw him, it was like that episode of Seinfeld. It's like, did that guy have a runny nose? Yeah. Does he seem all right? And then I remember going back to pick up the contract, and I had to pay this guy $1,500. Again, $1,000 was a lot of money for our clothes. $1,500 for a lawyer. We are doing this right. Like, in our minds, we he were was. like... Can we, can we say who he was? I don't know. He, he's the... He's he had a, fa- a very powerful dad. Yes. Extremely powerful. A, yeah, yeah. Extremely powerful dad, and he was kind of like a uh, crooked uh, cocaine lawyer, you know? <laughs> So I show up to get our, our contract and I walk out with it and I thank him up and down and he's like, I worked hard. I worked really hard. I remember he went back to them because he was like, yeah, this deal that they offered you is like they would they would absolutely own your ass if you if you sign this. I'm I, we're, we're not we're I'm sending them a completely different proposal. So, I mean, he did do some back and forth. I don't know what we ended up agreeing to. I'm sure we still gave away 50 percent of everything. Yeah, we I actually had somebody explain it to me and he said if you um. If you cut your band into 20 pieces, you gave him 14. Mm-hmm. Like it was, we made a horror. He had, he had our publishing. He had our merchandise. He had all sorts of things. A cut, not the whole thing. But it was like you cut the cake into 20 pieces and he got a piece of every where we got one piece of cake. Yeah. He got all of them. And then for some weird reason, I, I, I can kind of explain it. The paranoid schizophrenic weed guy is like, you guys should also make me your manager. You know me. You don't know him. And uh, frankly, I don't get a great feeling from this guy. And there's no way either party wanted to be in bed with each other. But we got right. We had that guy, uh, the crazy guy, become our um, it was a key man clause that basically if he left the management group or whatever, that we could actually get out of our entire contract or something like that. But why would we do that? Because he's a paranoid schizophrenic who thinks (laughs) we should be called the meerkats. (laughs) 
So then, you know, we get a little push and we had a guy working with us who had been his last job had been at um, a major label and he'd been one of the people who signed Skid Row and he would name drop like crazy. And then sure enough, we did a show at the Red Lion or the Lion's Den, Lion's Den. In New York and Dave the Snake Sable. Dave the Snake Sable. Hey, man, pretty good show. Caught that. That's pretty cool. And it was just like, oh, wow. You weren't even lying about that. And then, yeah, he built this. Our, our manager built this whole facility, and we filmed a, a music oh, video there. Oh, do you remember we got stopped going to rehearsal? The facility he built it in was in such a bad part of Montclair, New Jersey, that when we were walking down the street, we got stopped by cops for being white. Like, you should get out of here. Like, you're either here to buy drugs yeah. or do something fucked up or you're going to get robbed. I remember not far from there, we heard that there was a place where you could buy weed and we went over there to buy weed and the guy handed us vials and we're like, what is it? And he's like, it's crack. And we're like, no, we want weed. He's like, I don't have weed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think he gave us the money back. I don't think we actually had to take the crack. Yeah. Um, so... We're doing stuff with this guy, and it starts off really, really great. Oh, okay, we showcased. We only have a couple minutes left. So we we, we showcased for every record label, supposedly, in the world, and they were like, just wait backstage. And if It was a really good show, too. It, it was the best show we ever played. It was, and, and was that at CB's? It was at Don Hills. Okay, it was at Don it Hills. Was, I swear to God, it was just, we. it's really hard to catch the wave. When, when you're playing great in a band, it just feels like a wave, and you're all surfing at the same time, and it's just hard to get there. And we got there that night. Was, I, I really felt like it, we had to deliver. It was the best show we ever did. It was definitely, yeah, a, they, a standout show. And they just said, if somebody wants to sign you, they'll... They'll, we'll bring him backstage and introduce you. So we go backstage after the show, and we're like, we did it. We fucking did it. We just killed out there. This is it. And then we're back there for like 15 minutes, and some other dude, the guy who'd been playing air guitar, not the main manager, at our tryout, just comes back, and he's like, what are you guys still doing back here? Uh, you know, like, have taking your silver leather pants off yet? And we're like, we're waiting for, you know, Capitol Records. Yeah, we're and waiting like, for the deal. And he's like, that's not the way this works. Even if they want to sign you, they'll call us on, like, Monday or Tuesday, or so get the get the hell out of here. And... I remember we did another um, we did another showcase at SIR Studios on the Upper West uh, on the on the West Side Highway and nobody came, and then our guy ran out of money and it was just like time to break up. But in the meantime, we filmed. Uh, our manager wanted to fund one music video, and instead we told him we wanted to make parts of three. We were going to try to trick people and make them think that we had three music videos, electronic and, press kit they call an it. EPK, and so we. Uh, we did parts of three music videos, and I think it was fairly obvious that they were all the same thing. Looking back on it, the first video was cool. If we had finished we should the have just full done the video, one. that would have been awesome. That yeah. would have been a, a nice thing to have. But because we didn't want to leave it like this, what wound up happening is I had a uh, a friend who um, had a very rich uncle who hurt himself, and I had dropped out of college to be in the band. So he hired me for three months to drive him around New York City because he could only lay in the backseat of his car. And he would pay me $600 a week cash off the books. And I worked a couple months, and I got us up a budget, and we decided, let's go upstate and actually record the album. We knew we were breaking up. We knew it like, was over. This is stupid. That We, we not- had tried, but we had this, we had this work. And we never really got to be a band like that, so we went up to Utica, New York. And, and I had, I, at the, by this point, I had been shot in the eye with a paintball and right. got a small 
lawsuit. Yeah, you and I funded it. Yeah, yeah, we just paid for the whole thing, and we're like, just don't worry, the other guys, we're not gonna, we're not gonna not do it because you can't come up with a couple grand. So I went to my dad, and I was like, I know that's my college money, but can I please have a couple thousand? Again, New Jersey rockers, not New York rockers. <laughs> we loved our parents, and we went up to uh, to Utica, New York, and we spent a weekend there doing basic tracks, and it was cool. It was a real studio. We went to a strip club one night because that's what you do when you're a rock band, and and, and you got a lap dance from a girl who cried, who cried, and told me it was her first one, and I told her. <laughs> It was okay, and she could just have the money and didn't have to finish, and maybe she said that to people all the time. I'll maybe that was her bit. She was the crying stripper. I'll never really know. And uh, and yeah, we made the album, and in the meantime, we started hanging out with the couple who made our electronic press kit, and you started doing some work with him. He got a TV show um, filming uh, concerts, I, a show called Reverb on HBO, right? And I became a PA for that show, and then I moved into New York City. Um, I had just I was working for a radio station called Iyada dot com because yeah. I had just been an intern for Howard Stern, and I signed a one year lease and got fired from Iyada four days later because the entire company was out of business. And I had to figure out a way to make money. And so I started doing the Stern stuff. And at the same time, Mike lived right around the corner. I lived on 9th and A and you lived on 6th and A. Yeah, I had done absolutely nothing for a little while. And then you were I, doing waiter and stuff. Then, and then I went to college and then I went back to doing absolutely nothing. And then, and then what wound up happening was I had a little studio because now I had Pro Tools. And Mike and I would get together just like we used to in high school on Friday nights or... Hanging out and start making weird little recordings again, like without sometimes without a drummer, without this or that. And parts of those songs are what made it on to Death, Death, Die, which is really kind of yes. funny. Sir, like, Sir Eagle Cock the Third is that's the guitar part from, right? No, 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 no. It's, it's why don't you go fuck yourself? Song. Was revolution? You can go fuck yourself. Was one of those songs? Yeah, yeah. I, I basically yeah. Once once little it was like, riffs, hey, let's do, let's do a band for the radio show. I was like, well, I can scavenge my entire back catalog for right. that. So that's a lot of the Taint Sick and the Death That Thigh stuff. And then somewhere along the way, you were working at a syndicated radio place. Well, what I, what I would do is I would go over to K Rock and then I would go work an overnight job because K Rock paid me thirteen dollars an hour. During all my glory of working for the Howard Stern Show, I never made more than $13 an hour. So you had to have another job So I had to have another full-time job, and to make sure my hours were always compliable and I could could move them, I would work overnights. And then I wound up becoming friends with the Carson Daly people, and they said, hey, you know, you're a funny guy. You should write for us. And I said, anything I do that's funny, it's never because I wrote it down. That's not how I work. Like – if I'm funny, it's because I did it in the studio or I did it ad lib. I'm like, but, you know, you should get my boy Tully. Because at the time you were talking about writing movies or writing a book, You'd, you you yeah, had a great I, I, education. I was, I was thinking of doing all sorts of things. <laughs> right. And, and you got a chance to write a couple test scripts. Yeah. And you wound up getting hired. And then Tully and I worked together at Premier Networks. And when I got hired away by Will Pendarvis to come here... K Rock, uh, Sirius had such a hard on to steal people from K Rock. They were like, "Who else can we get from K Rock? We need people from K Rock." We already had Mark Demos, and we already had Steve Cavino. So I said, "You got everybody you need from K Rock, who's like worth the money, because the rest of the guys at K Rock were making way more than Sirius would pay at the time." 
I said, check out this guy, Mike Tully. And they checked you out. You came over to Sirius, and then there was an opening out in L.A., and you moved on out and uh, the rest, started the uh, Jason Ellis show. As they say, is the rest of it. Yeah, there you go. And now uh, all these years later, that's why I knew you so well, and that's why all those times that we could finish each other's stories, it's because we kind of hung for 25 years. Yeah, if people are wondering what the story is, there's the story. So we got to run. We're over time. You are on Faction Punk Channel 314. You're on Marky Ramone's Punk Rock Blitzkrieg number 712, and you are the darling of uh, country music here on SiriusXM. You can always find me on the highway. <laughs> At Cullen said this on all your socials, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Listen.